It should be obvious that we cannot solve a crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place. This is a last chance saloon. Because if we don't really take the decisions that are vital now, it's going to be almost impossible to catch up. We will end the moratorium on extracting our huge reserves of shale, which could get glass flowing as soon as six months. If unprecedented changes are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. Zero carbon. He's tall. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbonista Series 4, Fool's Gold. I'm Ian Collins and this is the UK's number one environment-based podcast. If it's green, it is in. There's only one man you'd want to talk to on such matters. He is the occasionally angry, but always, frankly, on it when it comes to the stories that are missing from the news agenda. He is the green entrepreneur and environmentalist, Dale Vince. Dale, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks, Ian. Did I say occasionally grumpy then? Is that... Um... Oh, you said occasionally angry. Yeah, that's kind of a libel, isn't it, really? I mean, you can... <laughs> yeah, I don't think I get angry, but I do kind of, like, speak out. I can't yeah. ever imagine you getting angry. No, it's, it's rare. Shall we start with the energy price cap falling in April, but price is still set to rise? What the hell is going on? Oh, it's all kinds of complicated, isn't it? Because, uh, well, the government set a, a price cap of their own a few months ago of £3,000. Yep. The regulator set the original price cap, you know, the kind of first and original version of that at £4,300 in January, while the government's price cap was 3000 And so, yeah, so people were typically paying um, £3,000, uh, even though the price cap was, you know, £4,200 or something like that. Yeah. And there's another £400 the government had given spread over the year at the rate of £66 a month That's right. to also help people with bills. I mean, it's, it's all kinds of complicated. The forecast for April is that the price cap will fall um, from £4,300 to £3,300, which is great, right? That's £1,000 uh, off, yeah. off the bill. But, and, um, but there's a big but, but here. The government are dropping their own price cap down to £2,500, uh, which is going to leave uh, people picking up a £500 extra cost in April. We're about 20% price rise, right? Which will do nothing to help inflation, I dare say. And certainly nothing to help people that are really struggling to pay bills. It's actually going to go up. While wholesale prices have dropped £1,000, the government are taking the opportunity to claw back 500 quid. So it goes down, but then it goes up again. So for <laughs> like, there's going to be maybe a little window of about two and a half minutes when it goes, <laughs> you go, yeah, it's gone down. And then suddenly you realise that Jeremy Hunt... Uh, has uh, decided that that little bit of governmental generosity is being completely revoked. I, I think it's a bit tight from the government. I mean, wholesale prices have dropped a thousand pounds. Should be good news, but they're dropping their own cap and and imposing an extra five hundred quid cost on on everybody. But despite that, it's going to cost the government twenty five billion quid uh, to run at that new lower. Uh, capped level from the government. Twenty five billion quid is enough to get us to seventy five percent green electricity on the grid. And, you know, take an enormous step to being completely in energy independent from a, a carbon-free source to have independent pricing of our energy that never has to go up and down with the craziness of the global market and keep bills permanently low. Yeah. You know, we that th we can spend that sum of money in six months subsidizing energy bills, but we can't spend it building the means to make energy, you know, kind of um, staggers me. Are you Again. still? Are you still? After all this time, though, you're still trying to apply logic to do <laughs> this, <laughs> this government's thinking. 
This is the government of business, right? I mean, I expect it, right? There's a bad business decision, that is. Just pour money into, into the cost of something rather than pour it into the infrastructure to have a proper long-term solution. Yeah. But there is some – well, how do you view this news? Whenever anything comes up environmentally from the government, there, there is a big fat label on it saying treat with caution. Mm-hmm. So government set to announce location of the first carbon capture plant. Firstly – what is a carbon capture plant for those who don't know? Yeah, in this case, it's a gas-fired power station, and the aim is to capture the CO2 emissions from that and pump them out into the North Sea, basically kiss them goodbye and hope they stay there, I imagine. Uh, it requires building a pipe out into the North Sea, and um, it'll double the cost of that power station from $350 million to $700 million. And it'll power one million homes. So it's basically going to double the cost of the power from that power station, which is crazy, right? Have they not noticed that energy prices are too high already? And for the same sum of money, you know, we could build a shed load of, of renewable energy. You know, something we could build more, like thirty percent more. We could power thirty percent more homes yeah. if we spend that money on renewable energy uh, than we uh, than we can if we spend it on a you know carbon capture gas project. But they, um, they cl- which is why I said the treat with caution label, because mm-hmm. that they would obviously. If the environment minister, who I've forgotten who this week's environment minister is, but if they were here right now, they'd be going, no, no, this is a really good thing. There have been a lot of hopes on this. This is one of those kind of unicorn technologies that the government likes to focus on uh, in terms of solving the climate crisis, you know. But carbon capture and storage at scale doesn't work anywhere in the world. It's simply uneconomic. (laughs) So there's no precedent for this being successful. It's not. And it's not the answer. You know, doubling the cost of our electricity uh, to to pump CO2 back into the North Sea doesn't make a lot of sense when... uh, The the other thing, of course, if we build this gas-fired power station, it will be exposed to the crazy global prices that we've seen in the last couple of years. Whereas if we build wind energy and solar power there'd be no price swing at all. Here's a question from Christine who says, hello, Dale and Ian. Uh, Dale, really enjoy the podcast. I found your book fascinating. What's your view on hydrogen as a future fuel? My boiler engineer says it's the future. I'm very concerned. It will be wasteful, inefficient, and expensive. So the other day on the radio show, Dale, we did a, I, I cited and quoted you quite a bit because yeah. we were talking about the fact you don't really need to rip out your boilers. You've just got to find a different method of what goes through the darn thing because that's mm-hmm. where the problem is. The mechanism is fine. Um, and we had a load of heating engineers and people who really know their beans on this, and they were talking about the ludicrous thing of heat pumps and, you know, oh, what great. it will take. And, you know, also, you know, you might, might need bigger radiators. You might have to rip up your floor to get bigger pipes in. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this could be incredible. Um, but a guy – Yeah, and, a, and I, I was talking about what you were discussing, and we talked about grass and all sorts of other things. But a guy right at the end of this said – well, hydrogen is surely the future. Now, we've touched on this before because on paper it does look good, but there are also problems with hydrogen. Yeah, look, it's one of those unicorn technologies. The government likes to talk up the hydrogen economy is the evocative term for this. The idea being that hydrogen can replace fossil fuels in all kinds of things, cars, trucks, planes, and even in um, in boilers, right? In, in the case of this question, yeah. uh, the guy is saying you put hydrogen in your boiler. But look, the fundamental drawback uh, with all of this, I was on a panel yesterday in London and, and somebody threw this question up from the floor. What about hydrogen? Fundamental problem is the round trip efficiency. You use electricity to make hydrogen yep. and then you use hydrogen to make electricity. Yeah. Uh, unless you burn it in a boiler to make heat. I, I accept that. Uh, but the round trip efficiency of electric to 
electric basically through hydrogen is 50%. Um, and, and if you do it and burn it for heat, then it's about 75%. So you take a big energy hit. And I think there is a role for hydrogen in the gas grid, but it's not at 100%. It's more like 20 to 25% Got it. mixing in with green gas. And all of our current grid appliances since the late 90s have been able to cope with that amount of hydrogen. So the grid is ready to go. Our boilers are ready to go. There's no impediment to that. And we can make hydrogen when we have excess renewable energy, which we will have more and more of as we get closer to 100%. Uh, and so it's a perfect kind of fit to turn that into hydrogen, stick it in the gas grid. But uh, in cars, you're looking at uh, doubling the cost per mile of running a car on hydrogen, same with any form of transport, actually, yep. just because of that round-trip efficiency. So, you know, there's a lot of hype around hydrogen, but, but the, the fundamental flaw is the efficiency of making it and using it. Yeah, so it, it is one of those. It, look, you can see on paper why people go, "Well, that would obviously work." And it's like it, so, and I, I think with good intention, people advance that argument. But as you say, when you drill down, then there's a there's a whole different story there. The way it's uh, presented is like its only byproduct is water, and and it's like the most abundant element in the universe. You know, all of that sounds great, but you can't just go out and hoover hydrogen from the atmosphere. You know, you can't do that. You've got to electrolyze water to make it. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, we often look at these kind of alternative ideas about how to tackle what is happening with the planet. The United Nations says we should be exploring reflecting sunlight back into space to tackle the climate crisis. Again, one of those headlines you look at and say, what the hell is that all about? But there's clearly someone's been crunching the numbers and looking at this and think there's something in it. Yeah. And I think we spoke about that on a previous episode. Uh, I knew it rang a bell when we were, <laughs> yeah, when I, just as I was saying those very words. So this, uh, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how some scientists have said, let's build a base on the moon, right, that sounds great, and throw up a load of rock dust into the space between the Earth and the sun to, to cool the Earth. Uh, by the way, it's going to cost like billions of pounds, and, and it's untested, and we don't know, you know, what happens if we lose control. Uh, I, I say probably an ice age, but, uh, you know, it's got all kinds of risks associated with it and cost. And this is the UN saying, look, our progress against carbon reduction targets just isn't good enough, and it continues, if it continues this way then we have to consider trying to do this from the Earth, not from the moon, reflect sunlight back out into space. Uh, it comes with the usual caveats, like we don't know enough about the risks on the one hand, and it's going to cost tens of billions of pounds per year for 100 years. It's like WTF. Are we so stupid that we won't spend that money on renewable energy and proper carbon reduction now that we'll wait until it's too late and then spend that sum of money simply trying to bounce sunlight back out into space. How stupid are we? It's almost as if there's a certain degree of wittery going on here. <laughs> it must be. It must be. <laughs> Who would have thought it? <laughs> uh, Lizzie says, uh, Dale, how can we book you to speak in an event? I love the fact this podcast is now being utilised as your kind of diary, Dale. <laughs> How can we book you to speak at an event and do your Elvis routine? I made the last bit up, but um, you do speak at events, of course. Yeah, I do. I was at one uh, yesterday, actually, the green events industry thing in London. It's all about live music events, basically festivals, gigs, that kind of stuff. And I was there talking about how we, uh, how we get fossil fuel out of the equation, actually, you know, with batteries and, and that kind of stuff. It was very interesting. But look, uh, the best way to... Um, to try and book me, I guess, is like send a message like you just have with some details and 
you know, we'll we'll pass it on to the team and see if it fits in the old diary. Yeah, your handlers will. Uh, handlers will. will, will <laughs> I love that phrase. Your handlers will re- refer it to the diary secretaries, <laughs> plural. It's, uh, it's all the same person, but yes, yeah, and, and you know, and I love to like uh, go out and speak, take part where I can. So if there's a yep. gap in the diary, then I'll usually take it. Yeah, it's actually a bloke called Alf with a spreadsheet. That's it. it sits in a little basement <laughs> somewhere. Going, Are you busy today, Dale? Um, <laughs> The answer is always yes. <laughs> You're always busy, yeah. Uh, here's one from Graham who says, I've got the new edition of the manifesto, so I'm giving away my old one, but why are there no photos in the paperback? Mm. How about an ebook edition with even more pictures? Fair question. It's not a um, colouring book, Graham. What are you after, man? <laughs> the pictures are really fun. And what Penguin said to us, the publisher of the book, is that pictures don't work in a paperback. And I was a bit surprised by that. But we we rolled with it. We thought, well, like, they're the book experts, right? So they took the pictures out um, of the book. Yeah, there it is. I think there's something in that. But then I suppose you can have a paperback with that, that sometimes in, inserts, you know, why am I talking like I'm a publisher here? There's, oh. <laughs> as if I know what the hell I'm talking about. It's just your latest new hat, right? I just, my new hat, yes. In the publishing world, what we tend to do with a paperback edition. <laughs> yeah, like I know anything. But the what I mean, it's worth, oh, there's the book bugle, though. The book bugle is back. Oh, it's a, it's worth a Come moment on. at this very junction. Just to mention the fact that this this is the paperback edition but it's been revised because there's new chapters in there as well. Yeah, that's right. New foreword from John Robb, uh, a couple of new chapters at the back, bringing the thing you know bang up to date in terms of the various projects we're pursuing, what's been happening in the country, some uh, latest views on on tax uh, and you know how we make that fair, and and really uh, and identifying a new crisis, which uh, I think is is all around us now, a crisis of capitalism. Right? I, I think you know it's kind of uh, shot itself in both feet over the last few decades, and people yeah. can see now that it just doesn't serve the people. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the I try to think who was who it was that said the end the end game of competition is the end of competition. Uh, <laughs> yes, which is a very yes. good point, and it, uh, it might have been Marx or somebody like that. And I, I, I sense it was, which of course you would apply to capitalism, and capitalism, of course, you know, I, I guess the caveat that should have been in there with the sort of all the Adam Smith stuff and everything would be that this is a system that will work beautifully for a period of time. Um, and for a few people. And, and yes, and ultimately for a few people. But after that, you might have to look at a different way of doing things. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. We should mention the new book um, normally will cost £1,000 a copy, but there is a special <laughs> offer. <isn't there? laughs> that's right. Super cheap compared to that. Yes. Uh, 4.99 from the Forest Green Rovers shop, fgr.co.uk slash shop. Well, uh, there's something that I want to talk about in the category of screeching U-turns. Um, I don't think we've, we've got nothing in the list right now, but I've got something in my head. Go on. Well, really weird, actually, to to find on Twitter a clip of Stroud's MP, Sharon Bailey, in the House of Commons praising FGR. So just to uh, remind listeners, like uh, she got elected a few years ago in, in the last uh, election that we had, although we've had three prime ministers yeah. in that period. Um, and the first thing she did, the very first thing she did was to oppose Eco Park, which is FGR's new home uh, or intended to be. And, and you know, we've not been friends in the whole PPE scandal, you know, um, we fell out. I think she dissembled with regards to her role on the VIP channel, all this kind of stuff. But anyway, cutting forward to like yesterday, I think she's in the house saying how important FGR are in the community, how she loves to bump into us when she's visiting schools and stuff, and and how we're leaders in the environment and how their owner, she she didn't name me, just their owner, uh, has called on the government's new football regulator to have 
environment standards that they impose on on football leagues. And she asked the minister uh, if he would do that and um, and if he would meet with FGR. The minister got up and said, "Well, you know, I know that FGR is no. like a great football club, basically, <laughs> <laughs> basically." So they're having this loving for FGR in the House of Commons, uh, and and he says like. Um, but he, he wouldn't commit to the environment stuff. He said, I can, I can tell you that whenever I get the chance, I talk about it. And we, we know that. Um, but he, he, he said, it's all going to be about financial s- stability or sustainability. It, the environment's not interesting really to him in that context. But he would happily meet with FGR. And I'm like, where's this, all this coming from? It's so weird. Do you see, uh, it's kind of weird. So you're, you're kind of being, you're being talked to. It's like so you're listening to two people talking about you. And you're I'm here. I'm, a, I'm actually here. <laughs> Hello. Hello. That's right. I'm here. And That's on right. they go. Well, we'd like to meet with him. Yes, he's a very nice man. There's absolutely you should have a conversation. Of course we will. <laughs> uh, right. But of course, what you're now waiting for, are you? Is, is it like when you're a kid and it's your birthday and you run to the front door because you're hoping it's the only time you get post, isn't it, as a child when it's a birthday because some auntie somewhere sends you a card. You're now waiting for that invite from the minister to come through the letterbox. I'm not, no, because I don't think it'll happen that way. I think if we reach out and say, hey, we saw this, do you want to meet them? Yep. You know, maybe that happened. And look, I could do that, right, if, if I could spare the time. I'm not sure what the purpose would be, because he's already said in the House that he, he won't add environment standards to the new regulator's uh, mission, which is, uh, you know, it's a bit disappointing. It's a great opportunity. I mean, blimey, what harm can it do? Here's one. Business class passenger insulted by banana served as vegan menu. What the hell is going on here, talking of capitalism? With chopsticks, right? It was on Japan Airlines. They gave him a banana and chopsticks. (laughs) Somebody was taking the piss, weren't they? I think they were. There's an awkward passenger in row seven. Should we whip out the banana and chopstick routine? Yeah. I was I was more horrified actually by what was on the menu for for non-vegans uh, tuna you know which is an endangered fish yeah I was more horrified by that you know the, the vegan thing I mean you've got to roll with it right if you've been vegan for very long at all then yeah. you, you know you'll know occasionally you there's just nowhere that you can eat sometimes you or nothing you can eat somewhere if you know what I mean and uh, a banana hey there's nothing to dislike about a banana right I think. Um, I wouldn't Don't try eating freaking chopsticks. chopsticks, though, do you? I mean, at <laughs> what point? I mean, banana is one of the you know few foods that comes like ready made with its own sort of eating yeah. utensil. I, food, so. the, indeed, yeah, it's got all the stuff going on. It even looks aesthetically rather nice when it happens. And who doesn't have a moment of sheer self delight when you peel one of those suckers in a beautiful symmetrical fashion? It's a lovely <laughs> moment. <laughs> you don't need a chopstick for this thing. You're a banana fan, aren't you? I love a banana. Who doesn't? Very good for you as well. But, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure the way they arrive in some of our supermarkets not is not so good. I, you know, I once tweeted. Um, all the supermarkets to say, I think, I can't remember how it was raised, but somebody asked the question. Now, I think I must have asked the question. I can't remember how it came up though. But when you go into a supermarket and you see a banana on the shelf, how long ago was that banana hanging oh. in a forest? Mm, long time. They're, they're picked green, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, well, I, ripen on the journey. I actually thought they were going to say like a year or something, but it was, I think it was about 18 weeks. Something which was actually quicker than I, I sort of assumed, but yeah, they're picked yeah. green and uh, in a way you'd never eat it, and then they, they ripen them up in some warehouse in Thurrock or something. But right now, of course, we should just be grateful that bananas arrive in supermarkets at all. Yeah, big old shortage of everything. We right? ain't got no tomatoes. There's a bit of panic buying going as well, which is a bit daft with tomatoes because you can't really freeze tomatoes. <laughs> well, you can if you're yeah. going to use them in a stew, but you can't, you know, you can't freeze a cherry tomato and then thaw it out and eat it. No, it's all mad. But really. folk are bloody strange when it comes to this kind of stuff. 
Yeah. Uh, ben says, Dale, here we go. Here's an interesting juxtaposition. I'm in Japan no. eating a banana with it. No, I'm in Japan. <laughs> I'm wondering how different the new edition of your book is before I order it. I got the first edition for Christmas. Love the podcast. too. Well, we mentioned, there'll be two, two new chapters in there as well. Uh, yeah, and the new forward from John Robin, that kind of stuff. So we covered that, but no pictures. But um, no pictures. you've seen the pictures from the first book. Well, the reason we don't do that in the publishing world with the – oh, sorry, uh, we, yeah. we went there, didn't we? Sorry. Yeah, still still have no answer. <laughs> Jay says, Dale, got any thoughts on Bristol's proposed district heating network? Seems like a foolproof plan and almost too good to be true, but fingers crossed. Well, I don't know much about it, but I do understand district heating as a as a concept, and I think it's a good thing. Uh, you know, it's an efficient way to to heat a whole bunch of homes from a, from a single source. I don't know where Bristol are going to get the heat from. I don't know if they're building a network of pipes for existing homes or new homes. But you know, I say go for it. Go for it. Good work, Dale. That's it for this episode. We are back in a week. When are you going to share the news with our listeners that you gave me last week that we are? drum roll in the top five percent of all podcasts on the planet absolutely top five percent of all podcasts on the planet and essentially kicking the shite out of anything (laughs) similar yes (laughs) i don't know where that accent came from Uh, but yeah there it is top five percent and that can't be argued with and it's it's such a a crowded market that to be able to penetrate your way through to the highest echelons uh is, Mm. is a good thing yeah, it's incredible. I was. I'm just the gob on the stick. This is down to the mighty Dale. That's why I'm. <laughs> that's why MPs are talking about you in Parliament. <laughs> no, they weren't. They didn't name me. They only talked about Forest Green Rovers. Yeah, they were just trying to be cool, weren't they? Like we yeah, won't yeah. say the name. Yeah, I think. Yeah, everybody knew. Uh, speak next week, Dale. Yeah, nice one. Don't forget, of course, to follow this podcast on your podcast provider so that you get each new episode automatically. Leave a review there too. And if you want to get in touch, you can email your comments, zerocarbonista at ecotristy.co.uk. And do make sure you follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash dalevins, facebook.com slash dalevins, and on TikTok and on Insta too. Zero Carbon East off.